Welcome to the Modern Work Podcast. I'm Katherine Conaway, and I talk to people about the work they do and how they got there. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Really well. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Jason. I am the operations manager for Batuta, and I've been working for Remote Year for about a year. I'm constantly fascinated by the stories I hear from the people I meet while I travel the world working remotely. So I decided to sit them down and press record. Uh, full disclosure, so I'm in Remote Year Batuta, which means that Jason is one of the two program managers that has been traveling with my group this year. And Jason, as the operations manager, is in charge of all sorts of things, which he will get into. But it is meant that he is very dear to our hearts because he's kept us alive all year and a little abused because he gets all of our complaints and problems are directed at him for everything. So thank you for being willing to talk to me at all still, much less be recorded. (laughs) No problem. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. He's the most patient person we have ever met. (laughs) I like to start out kind of unpacking people's backstory. Like, where did you grow up? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Chicago, or just outside of Chicago in the suburbs. Uh, but I stayed there my whole life okay. until I was like, say, eighteen. And, and then when I went college. to I went to college and I moved pretty close. I went about two hours south of Chicago to Bloomington, Illinois, middle of nowhere, cornfields, um, and went to Illinois State University there. Why did you go to Illinois State? Great question. I'm still kind of looking back (laughs) trying to figure that out to this day, but um, at the time I didn't really know what I want. I thought I wanted to go to a big school and that was, you know, one of the, one of the big Illinois public colleges. Yeah. Did you have something that you were like, what were you really into as a teenager? Um, I, I don't know. It's hard to like look back. I, w- I was much more into like environmentalism, um, kind of like that was like the beginning of getting interested into politics and public policy and things like that. But um, I was never really sure if that's what I wanted to do at school. I went to school undeclared, kind of didn't choose a major until year two when they basically told me I had to or I'd have extra years of school. <laughs> went with politics because it was at the time like the most reasonable thing to do. Um, I also minored in environmental studies. So how did you get into, like, before college as a teenager, the environmental and policy stuff? Like, is that something your parents did or in your community? Yeah, I think it's some some stuff that my parents did, but it was also just, like, as a kid, um, I was, like, I don't want to say I wasn't a hippie, but I was, like, my group of friends were were kind of, like, more of, like, an alternative crew that were were interested in those types of things. Um, I always grew up outside. My dad used to work at a zoo and... um, just like loved being outdoors and so I grew up traveling and going going to national parks and things like that and you don't like wearing shoes and I don't like wearing shoes that's yeah yeah. (laughs) so I don't know you like outdoors no shoes you're there you go okay so um what kinds of things were you studying in university that like was super interesting to you yeah so as a politics student you get first introduced to American uh, American politics which is incredibly boring and not interesting for a lot of people including myself um it wasn't why is it boring well american politics the the things that i'm not interested are getting into like the nit nit and gritty about like how, how we elect presidents why we do the things we do i was always more interested in like the international relations um how the world kind of works together and how they how they how they make policies and, and, and things change. And that's the kind of stuff that you couldn't get into until after you get through all like the basics, yeah, basic sure. courses. 
Um, so after like after my first and second year of kind of doing those those basic politics classes, I got into more interesting stuff. I started minoring in Middle Eastern and South Asian studies, and that was kind of like the first time that I started to enjoy my coursework. Um, I was doing a lot of international relations courses. Um, what is what is an international relations course? entail yeah so it's, it's a wide variety there's like some really general international relation courses where they would it would be basically talking about the un for example like how the un works why it was formed what the purpose was and and, and how it's like how it's still changing today and there would be other ones that would be more specific so i took a class on um is the israeli-palestinian conflict and the whole course was like based around that but it used the context of all of the other like conflicts that were similar to kind of um show like how where it was going and what it would potentially come to okay um, because that's like some of the assumption is of course each individual culture and country is unique but then you also have patterns of human interaction of saying like well when these things come together it doesn't matter what continent they're on sure probably it's going this sure. direction and i think what was cool about it was it's all like really real and tangible so you're all like you're, you're studying these case studies of things that have happened mm -hmm. whereas like a lot of the really early on stuff you're just talking about like what it says in the constitution and it's just to me that part of like politics was never very interesting right it's it's really interesting to look at how it's applied or how it is right like right, exactly. human beings are doing exactly with it. okay so you studied this and that's the degrees you graduated with was yeah politics and government with a minor in environmental studies when you so when you graduated with that had you done internships did you have an idea of what you wanted to be doing uh no not really so <laughs> i i didn't <laughs> I, I didn't ever do an internship um for anyone that doesn't know, if you study politics, your only real internship opportunities, at least in the middle of Illinois, your only real internship opportunities are working on political campaigns, which is, once again, something that I have always hated. Um, and so I never did anything like that. Um, but my last semester of college, I had I studied abroad in Argentina. And um, as I was finishing up, I was kind of having this like crisis of like, I need to get into the real world. And I just realized that I don't really like politics that much and I don't want to be involved in <laughs> politics. And so I started looking for anything else that had like a low barrier of entry. I found um, uh, a marketing a marketing job with a small little digital agency in Buenos Aires. And yeah, it was I just, they'd hire Americans. Well, at the time there was, in a, it was a company about half Americans, half Argentinians, and at the, at the time they were looking for an intern to... Oh, and you were in BA. I was in BA at the time, at the time yeah. That and, makes more sense. <laughs> and they were they were working with a lot of international clients. Like uh, Their whole angle was that they were cheaper than working with a U.S. agency. Um, they had lower overhead costs in, in Argentina. And I was doing like marketing and SEO for them. So really basic stuff. Like it was like writing SEO rich content, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd have a team of guys in India that would send me a bunch of words that I had to somehow include in an article about hardwood floors. And it, was, it wasn't a glamorous job, but uh, it was like a great kind of entry into that world. And then eventually they started paying me and I hung around for a little bit. And, and, and so you, you did that your last, you studied right your last semester yeah. and you started the internship during that semester? Yeah, that's right. And, and then I kind of hung around a little bit afterwards, Okay. Um, ended up having like a few visa issues, wasn't, wasn't really allowed to work in the country, it turns out. Um, and mm -hmm. so I had to leave. So did you go back for your graduation or were you in Argentina? No, I skipped graduation. I that's was, shocking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a very sentimental person. <laughs> Jason, you will cry over us one day. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. Um, 
So you stayed in Argentina for a little bit and then you went back to Chicago. Um, Kind of. I was in Argentina. I was looking for the next step when I realized I had to go and I had been applying for jobs around the world. I didn't want to go back to Chicago anytime soon. And uh, so that's when I got my job in, in Cambodia. Naturally. And yeah. And so I, I did jump back briefly to Chicago for a few weeks, but uh, didn't stay for long. Okay. So now you're off to Cambodia. What were you doing there? Yeah. So in Cambodia, I was working with uh, a small little social enterprise out in the provinces. It was in a, a city called Bonambang. Um, it was a company that took uh, local college students and trained them um, not only to speak English, but also to kind of give them that first uh, job experience. Because in the province of Cambodia, typically um, a young person's only work experience is working in a rice field or uh, like a very, very basic job. Um, and it's really hard for them to, to get like practical job experience that lets them make that next step out of poverty. And even the ones that can figure out ways to go to college, um, it's really hard for them to step in from a life of, you know, working in a rice field, going to a university, and then just jumping into that first, like, paid full-time job. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, like, been this huge push by international NGOs um, all over the world, um, all over Southeast Asia, but I think particularly in Cambodia, just to um, find ways to give back to those communities. Uh, but it was also a really cool organization because not only were we training the guides, but we were taking um, all these tourists out into the countryside to visit local family businesses. So it was a way to kind of help um, supplement some of those businesses that that, that um, could use extra tourism dollars. And what, what I'm sorry, what were you doing with the yeah, organization so, specifically? So I was managing the company at the time. Um, it was, it was, just don't laugh at me, Catherine. <laughs> just like, you know, it's your first job out of college. Yeah. Like I was, I was managing the entire company. Yeah. So, so it was a company at the time. It was about 10 people. And, um, one of the issues that they had, believe it or not, was that they were a bunch of college students and no one really had any management experience. So they were all Cambodian. They were all Cambodian college students. Okay. And so, um, they were great. They were really, really cool, but nobody is partially, partially it was a cultural thing, but nobody wanted to be the one that stepped up and took the management role. And so they tried the, the initial, um, people who started the company tried to hand it over to, to one of the, one of the college the people students. that started the company were like from an NGO or yeah, something. Yeah, it was started by a, a couple, an American and Australian who were, who were working in, in Cambodia. And they tried to hand it over. The handover didn't really work. No one wanted to take responsibility. They all wanted to be employees, not the manager. Um, so then they were looking for someone to come in um, at kind of a very low level and just try to help groom um, one of the people to become the next manager. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of my role. So It's funny because I feel like in American culture, like everyone's trying to get uh, ahead. Everyone wants to be in charge. And we very much like glamorize and prioritize those kinds of roles. And so the instinct is to say like, I want to be in charge, like put me in charge of like what, like that's the goal. Like our, we glorify like the top dog and in other cultures, it's just not done the same way. Yeah. And so we don't think about it, but like that maybe makes total sense for like the Khmer culture. Yeah. And it just wasn't people take like for, for young people, especially taking that initiative was something that they had never really done before and didn't have anything. And, and on top of that whole thing, um, it was a woman that they were trying to and to put into place as the, as the manager of this company. So that's a whole nother layer of cultural issues, um, that, that we're trying to get past. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that was like a, a, a purposeful move by, by the founders. Yeah. Um, but at the time, it was Still really, really hard for her to kind of step into that authority role and manage men. Yeah. yeah. I remember um, 
kind of on a different note, but reading one of the Malcolm Gladwell books, and he talked about how when they had um, pilots, like foreign pilots, like they'd have issues where like the co-captain or whoever was the second in command didn't want to challenge the first in command. And in their culture, you would never do that. And one of the ways they solved it, or he said that they solved it kind of internationally, was by instilling English as the language for all of the pilots because that kind of brought in like the American English culture of this is more normal and you can confront somebody in a way that you wouldn't in your native culture and your native tongue. Um, oh, that's really interesting. Never heard that. Yeah. So for better or worse, like you <laughs> can bring in like that, like American mindset in a way, which I definitely don't think we're always right. And that, that our mindset is always the best, but certainly I think for some business stuff, it makes sense that bringing in some of the processes that we use in management. Sure. Absolutely. And this is, this is a great example of, of a company. If nobody wants to take the initiative, it's, it's not going to grow. It started as a social enterprise. So the money that was being earned was being um, given back to the community in different ways, like one through paying these college students and two through bringing tourist dollars to the local community. But if nobody was willing to take the initiative and uh, it could have really easily just died. And then all of that, um, all of those potential powerful uh, impact sources could would have just died with it. Right. Right. Um, how long, how was that experience for you working there? Yeah, it was great. It was really hard. Uh, I was <laughs> Cause like, you're what, like 22? Yeah, I, was, 20? I, I was fresh out of college and had never been in a management position before. And, um, all of a sudden I had like, not only like those initial like manager trying to figure out how to do this, but it was also a cross cultural environment where I was the only foreigner. I, I quickly realized that there are a lot of things that people just refused to tell me. Um, like no one, no one would confront me. No one would tell me I was doing something wrong. Um, I had to deal with a lot of people that would just say yes, no matter what, even when it wasn't a situation where That's yes was so much part of that. Like, especially Southeast Asian culture, you're like this and people are like, yeah, if you have no idea what you're talking about, they just yeah. say yes. Cause it's like, I want to be pleasing you. I want to like, yeah. and it's not cause you're a foreigner. It's just the culture is like, you say yes to people for whatever they're asking. Yeah. And like, it can be very confusing. Cause you're like, even just ordering food, you're like this, you're like, yes. And then you, it doesn't happen. And you're like, well, we, we just talked about it. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, and, and it was as, as weird as it was and as hard it was, it was super cool. And I met some like really amazing people and have some great friends like to this day that I still talk to. Um, and it was definitely like a, a kickstart to like having like a little bit of initiative and, and wanting to do some things in life. And, um, and it, it didn't work out exactly how I planned. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't able to like do the handover the same way that I, I was hoping I would when, when I left. Um, but all in all, I think the year was definitely a success and, and the company continued to grow. So. so they're still around? Yeah, they're still around. Um, I think it's been kind of taken over by new management, mm-hmm. but the company is still successful. If anyone ever goes to Vodamong, the company is called Soaks a Bike. What? Uh, Soaks a Bike. Is that like a... Mare word? Yeah, no. So in, in Khmer, um, soaks a bike is how you say, like, how are you? And so it's a play off of that to soaks a bike. And because it's a bike tour company. Okay, okay. That's pretty interesting that you spent pretty much your first like 21, whatever years of life in this like very close area of Chicago. And you said you traveled, but had you done a lot of international travel before you went to Argentina? No, so I hadn't really been out of the country. I'd been to Canada and I had been on a resort vacation to the Dominican Republic when I was a kid. Um, And then my first real international travel, I studied abroad earlier in university. I went to Bangkok for a semester. Because you had been to Asia. Yeah, so that was my first real parlay into international travel. Then when I went back, I had like a, a month in Europe over a summer. 
And then I went to Argentina. So you pretty early were making international travel like part of your life as soon as you were able to do those yeah, things. Yeah, sure. After say 20, it's been it's been a major part of my life. And the way you've like made that happen and, and afforded it is in college, I assume it was kind of like these study abroad programs that were kind of similar fees and whatever to being in school anyway. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, it's actually like, this is like a story that I tell a lot because I think it's really interesting, but I always hear people talk about how expensive it is to study abroad. And normally it really is, but there's like great programs. I remember when I chose Bangkok, Thailand, I had like, I didn't know anything about Thailand and had no interest in going there except for the fact that they were offering essentially a free education. So they were doing an exchange program with my university where they would exchange at a student there and my university would exchange at a student at this university in Thailand. And there were no, um, there was, there was no, no fees aside from like buying your flight out there, putting, getting rent. Do you even have to like pay that. for this semester of tuition? No, there was no tuition fee as part of this exchange program. And, wow. and a lot of these programs like this exist. It's just hard to find them. And they're generally not to the countries that people want to go to. Yeah, so of course. Like, you're not going to find this for Paris. You're not going to find this for, for Italy. You have to look a little bit harder and go to some places that, that might be like really trying to bring in foreign exchange students. Um, but I think like there's very few places that you'll study abroad and have a bad time. Like, yeah. if any. It's yeah. Cool. Well, and so much of the challenge is like part of the learning experience. Like I studied abroad in Siena, Italy, which is this gorgeous Tuscan town um, and certainly there was nothing like objectively hard and whatever about it but there were still challenges of just being away from home and being in a foreign environment and like that's part of the point of studying abroad and whether that foreign environment is Italy or Thailand like yeah Thailand might be a bigger shock earlier on but I still think you're essentially going for the same reason and if finances are a concern like finding these programs are really great ways. Like I, on a similar note, worked a couple summers in New York, which was not something that I could easily afford still, even though I've lived there. Um, and my parents certainly weren't going to like pay for an apartment. And, um, you know, I finagled ways of making it work. And one, one summer I got some college like scholarship or something that my school had where they'd give you like $3,000 to use during a summer internship and I applied for it and it paid for my housing. So I could have an unpaid internship and like waitress on the side. Yeah. But I just had to like go to the career counseling office and like talk about the options and find it. And then it was like, Oh, well, this is possible. And I think this is something that like a lot of the people that you're interviewing are going to have in common is like, there's definitely ways to travel and there's definitely ways to make it work. It's just, you, you can't expect it to be like thrown in your lap. If you really want it, there's plenty of ways to find it, but it does take a little bit of work to, to find it. Right. And I think some of like, in some ways we have this expectation that people are just going to figure things out, but if you've never heard of it, you don't know to look for it. But once you kind of start like just knowing to even like the search terms for Google is like study abroad, like fellowship or yeah. like whatever. And just like starting to look up some of those things can get you down the rabbit hole where you find something really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a good way of um, getting abroad was you did these semesters abroad. You traveled a little bit. You had this job in Cambodia, which I assume like paid for maybe not a lot of money, but your housing and like yeah, Life. exactly. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough to enough to <laughs> at least get me through that that year without having to dip into savings or borrow money or anything. Yeah, I had like my first job out of college was abroad, and it was the same thing. Like I made no money. Like I think I made like eight thousand dollars for the year, yeah. but they like paid for my apartment, and I lived in Morocco, so it was cool. <laughs> yeah. Um. So what happened after you finished that year in Cambodia? 
So after after Cambodia, I went home and uh, I started thinking like about getting. I was kind of feeling the pressure of of real life and getting a job with health insurance because um, I didn't have that at the time. And um, yeah, I think there's like a lot of there's a lot of pressure when you go back to the states about like you know settling down, doing what everyone else is doing, and. I thought about that. Yeah, you're like 24, figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about that. I started applying for a lot of full-time jobs. I still had no idea what I wanted to do. So it was like pretty aimless applying, you know, um, still applying for some international jobs, but trying to kind of focus on staying in the States. And I was kind of like working on the side, a bunch of like random odd jobs, like just trying to get through, um, waiting for that like dream job to come. And it like just wasn't coming. And I was doing like all sorts of weird jobs. I was selling cotton candy and I was like being like a, a model patient so people could like practice doing like doing, doing weird things. And um, I was like working at, at uh, branding and marketing events to like hand out free samples to things. It was it was not glorious work. But uh, I can just see your like level of chill. You're like, here, take this coupon. <laughs> well, no, that was like one of the hardest jobs I ever had. I had to like, I had to like cold approach people and try to convince them to buy a product by giving them a sample. That's not and your personality. It's not my personality at all. And, and, and you're getting like monitored on, you have to like sell a certain amount or like get, give away a certain amount. And it was really, really challenging. So I would just kind of stand in the corner and like when people would come by, I'd try to like play the nice card and be like, oh, it'd be really great if you could just just try this real quick. You played that card on us all the time. Like, yeah. It'd be really great if you stopped ruining my life right now. We're like, <laughs> all right, Jason, for you, well, it's a good angle. Yeah, yeah. It's a good angle. I think those jobs that like aren't glamorous, you don't love, like they're so helpful to have had, not only because it gives you some skins on the wall, but to use a phrase my dad says, but... It, it gives you not only a sense of what you do and don't like and are and aren't good at, but it also helps you understand like other skills and jobs that other people might have and like where you can acknowledge someone else's strengths and like respect that and also like what isn't going to work for you. But also you practice something you're not good at or comfortable with. So if you have to do it later, you're, you're not terrified of trying to make a sale or, or approach somebody cold. Yeah, like, absolutely. You've done it. By, by the end of it, a cold approach wasn't that hard. It was just, it's still, it, it will always suck. Like no one will ever enjoy that. But it's like, <laughs> once you get over the initial fear of it, it's, yeah. Yeah, you can move on. I was a telemarketer, so <laughs> I, I know all about <laughs> Oh my God, Jason, it's yeah. a whole new world. I know, I, I didn't know. know any of this. Yeah. You're so tricky. <laughs> So then what happened? So then I couldn't find a job and <laughs> I was like kind of getting sick of this lifestyle. And I wanted to travel again. And this is when I, I had had this like lifelong dream of, of um, moving to Alaska and working with Huskies. Sure. And and this in this moment, I couldn't find a job in Alaska, but I did find a job in Finland. And um, <laughs> similar. Yeah, similar. It was, it was still really cold and there were dogs. And so I spent um, like three months up in Finland uh, working with Huskies and helping. At kind oh, of literally a, in Finland with dogs. Yeah. OK. Yeah, literally. <laughs> they weren't just there with you. They were why you were there no no yeah I, I went there to work with them and um i was just working at like a sled dog um, it, was a, it was a tourist company um the dogs competed on the side but it was mainly a kind of um yeah a tourist business in the winter time and i kind of just lived out in a little cabin took care of the dogs um i would when tourists would come in on the bus loads i'd set up all the all the harnesses and kind of take tourists out on on little rides around the lake was this your dream job? 
yeah, this is a short-term dream job. After doing it for a few months, it definitely doesn't fit my long-term lifestyle plan. But uh, it, it, was, it was like a really, really amazing experience. And it was like definitely the most physical work I ever did. And definitely like the most challenge, challenging job I've ever done from like a social perspective. I was living alone in this cabin with this, with this French guy who just like... <laughs> didn't wasn't wasn't the most easy to get along with like I think he was a fascist and he was <laughs> and we used to always get into these debates but then there would also be like days where you just wouldn't talk to anyone for like 20 24 48 hours because like no one was around or you just had been around this person so much that you had nothing to say and <laughs> it's freezing cold and like waking up I remember still like waking up in the middle of the night and one of the dogs would get loose and all the other dogs would howl and it would be pitch black there's like no lights around for miles and it's like negative 20 degrees out and you have to like roll out of your bed and, and go outside and chase dogs around and try <laughs> to like it was like it was a, it was a bit of a nightmare sometimes but it was also like the coolest most unique thing i've ever done how did you find this job uh, i found this one so this is actually a really cool website it's called Workaway. and for anyone that's like familiar with wolfing it's mm -hmm. very similar to that the only like difference is that it doesn't have to be organic farming i don't know any any job you can imagine that would be like good for a short-term stint or like a backpacker there's even some people that are just like i'm building a house and i and i need help mm -hmm. um they post these on this website um, in exchange, you do roughly four hours a day, although like oftentimes it's, it's a bit more than that, um, in exchange for housing and food. Okay. And you can just go on this, look at all these different countries around the world, find a job, reach out to them by email and set it up. So it's like, it's really, really easy to do. You don't make money, but you can definitely sustain yourself for a bit. Right. Because you have food and housing. So yeah, you're exactly. alive. Exactly. And then, and then oftentimes what happens is you're only supposed to work four hours a day. So you can come up with like an agreement to, to work six or eight and get a little bit of money on the side to pay for whatever expenses you may have. So you did this Finland dog husky experience <laughs> in the winter wonderland. Yeah. And then. And I did that for a few months and then uh, my Schengen visa expired and I had to leave. <laughs> you just keep uh, getting. Story of my like, life. Like, I will stay here and you'll drag me out kicking and screaming. Yeah, story legally. of my life. Um, and so I moved back to Chicago for a little bit, um, started kind of taking that next step. I, I went back to where I was before I left, started thinking about long term jobs. And um, I found this job at a digital agency. It was um, called Butler Inc. It was a small um, design and Wikipedia consulting agency, but it was really cool because the whole company was remote. I think at the time it was something like 15 or 20 employees. So it was really small. And um, I got a job working kind of like backend operations, like building out kind of in internal policies and procedures for the company. Um, and yeah, I did that for about a year and just lived in Chicago. And w when you say like you're building out these internal policies and procedures, is that something that you just kind of figure out when you get there? Was it the things you studied in school were helpful in any way or? No, no. you know, this in this job, this job was like, I think it kind of started out, they imagined it more like, more like a secretary or like somebody just like behind the scenes that they could send stuff to. And then what it ended up was like, they realized that they needed that they like didn't have a system for this and i was the one that was kind of in place to, to to put to like build that out and then once i started doing a few of those it like quickly became apparent that i was good at organizing things and then i kind of like slowly gained more responsibility and they let me have like a little bit more flexibility with that 
But uh, for like a lot of small companies like this, everyone's got like a really defined role and there's no one kind of on, on the backside that's like bringing things together. And, and I, it definitely wasn't a skill that I ever studied or learned. It was just kind of like a practical life application skill that I was able to bring together. Yeah. What do you think makes you good at organizing things or kind of do you, are you aware of your process of how you organize things and are good at that? Uh, no, no, <laughs> I, I, I just, I've always been like, I think it's the way I think it has something to do with, with how I like process things in my head. But, mm-hmm. um, do you process things like, like I know for me, um, partially because I think my dad is this way. And so either I inherited it or he just showed me that way. So that's why I think the same way, but, um, like he loves spreadsheets and stuff like that. So he just taught me really early, like, you can use a spreadsheet for money. You can use a spreadsheet for packing. You can use a spreadsheet. Like, here's how you can organize anything in a spreadsheet. So my brain is like, let's make a spreadsheet. Like, Yeah, I think, in the, I mean, on some degree, I'm like an obsessive note taker um, about things that I care about. Like, definitely not not at school. I wasn't like a, a great note taker. But um, for like things I have to do, I always have like a running to-do list that's, that's like very detailed. Um, you like organize by categories or timeline yeah, or exactly, something like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And... Um, I get like really stressed out if I don't have something like that because it it kind of like makes puts everything in front of me and makes it a little bit easier to, to comprehend and like figure out how to attack it in a way that makes sense. And then was that what led into remote year? Was yeah, so, so I was doing that remotely. I had this like realization that <laughs> living in one place just wasn't going to work for me. And I remember <laughs> I think like, that happens a lot. Like people who kind of start traveling or you live abroad. Like I, I remember moving back after two years being like, I'm going to live in America now. And then like two three years in I was like I can't do it like I thought I could do it but I can't do it yeah um yeah and and yeah that was exactly it and, and I started like I asked them if I could leave the country they said <laughs> they said no and I was like trying to figure out why and they didn't really have a good reason something about taxes and and like time zones which I'm not going to get into but it wasn't it didn't it didn't work out um, and it was already remote, though. It was so already a remote job. Remotely. So I was working remotely in Chicago. Everyone was in different cities around the States, but not internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, I started looking for other jobs. And then kind of like <laughs> timely, I got laid off from that job. <laughs> and um, I was kind of like for the next two months, I was like really like trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I like thought I had like a little bit more clarity on what, what I liked, but I still didn't really know. Um, and I was applying for like a lot of really boring business jobs in New York and <laughs> I can tell that they were boring cause you just called them business jobs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> business jobs, uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever that means, business stuff, <laughs> whatever that means. And, and they were all like dreadful kind of like life sucking jobs, but it felt like the right thing to do at the time. And, and then I found remote year and I applied for remote year and I remember like, Telling, telling everyone around me how cool it was and how I just applied for this job and there's no way and whatever. And it was just, it was, it was good timing. Um, I had gotten a job offer from one of these boring business jobs <laughs> the day before. And I was like, as much as it wasn't that exciting, I was pretty close to, to accepting it, you know, within the next like couple of days. And then I got a call from Trish and I started a remote year. Just like that. Yeah. It's funny how when you're, when you don't have a job or when you need a new job, you're just like, oh God, let me just apply to things. And you're, you know, like writing applications and, um, I'm sure like the cover letters are fine, but like, you know, when you're in your head, you're just like, oh, I'm just applying for whatever job. And, like yeah. it's just a business or marketing or 
like, you know, air quotes the whole time and you're just like pained by the hundreds of applications you're writing. It's like not really shocking that we're not getting these jobs because we're just clearly on job boards, like hating it. Um, And then you find something you're excited about and you reach out and you're just like, oh my gosh, I love what you're doing. Couldn't be more into it. Think this would be fantastic. Please let's talk. Like those are sometimes the ones you get a call back. Yeah. I, I remember applying for jobs and then getting to the first round of interviews and then like looking at the job and be like, why did I apply for this in the first place? This sounds miserable. And, and it, like, sometimes you just get so into that. Like I need to find something that you start applying for whatever. And that's where I was. And then, yeah, I found remote year and I like my first instinct was like, this is the coolest job in the world. Like why, like I'm definitely not trained for this. Why would, why would this, why would they hire me for this job? And then uh, I applied and actually it turns out like my skill set did kind of fit what they were looking for. And it's not a very, like there wasn't a very clear skill set because it's totally new concept it's like a the, the whole thing doesn't really fit into any any other job fields or areas and, and right and you were hired like right before our program started right yeah so so <laughs> now, now that we're in month 12 <laughs> the truth comes <laughs> out um i yeah because no, there was somebody else originally um from the participant side actually i was really early in our group to join because i'd reached out to greg like really early on in the other program when I found it. Um, but yeah, so like I had gotten in and all this other stuff and I and didn't hear anything. And then they got the rest of the group. And then in October they said, Oh, Hey, you've put all your faith and deposit in us and it's a real thing. And it's going to happen in, you know, February 1st. And, uh, these two guys, Dave and miles are going to be your program leaders. And then, I don't even remember at what point you were announced. Like maybe January. It was January it was because January? I, I think I think I actually I think I got hired somewhere around mid January, and then um, I was on the ground in Buenos Aires within within a week, mm. and then two weeks later the program started in Montevideo. In Montevideo, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was crazy, but honestly, like I remember like noticing that it was a different person. Obviously, like the names were different, and we got like the email saying no Miles, meet Jason. Um, but at that point, like we'd had so little communication from remote here that like it was hard to be attached to anybody because we're like, is this program even real? Yeah, like, I, we're the second group. And, like, <laughs> I remember being surprised that people weren't more like quite had more questions about it. Like people didn't even know. I think someone did call me Miles for a little bit, mm. but I think like past that, it was everyone yeah. just kind of forgot that that was even a thing. So yeah. I mean, luckily it happened before we even met, so I don't think it was, like, that big of a deal. And I think the onboarding process for programs now, like, the participants is very different than ours, which was just, like, you're going to need a ticket to Montevideo. Maybe you need a visa. Uh, See you January 31st. And we were like, okay. And then we just self-organized and showed up. I could say that the process is is much smoother now. Those were those were pretty early days, and and yeah, those things have definitely been built out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the, I was actually making a joke to somebody the other day about how um, you know we're the second group. It's like we have these names. We know the first group. We know the you know the five six groups going now. Like we still have a very personal relationship to people in other groups. Like we can kind of like, oh, I know that person's in Dairy, and I know that person's in Magellan. Uh, we know a lot of the staff. But I was like, man, in like six months, a year, remote year is going to be like those. You remember these CDs from growing up? It's like, now that's what I call music. And when we were kids, there was like six, seven. And now they're like 147. And I was like, 
Remote Year's the new, like, now that's what I call music. Like, it's a great analogy. The number of programs we're going to have in, like, 2018, it's just going to be silly. Like, I think. I think think the idea of calling us Remote Year 2 and then calling eventually, like, Remote Year 37 doesn't sound quite as cool. Yeah. So I think that's definitely going to go towards the names. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. That's why they're going to Zoom. But that's also part of the reason I'm so proud to be in Remote Year 2 because it's a single digit number. Like, it's a second. We're absolutely the beta group, which has, I'm sure, been an experience for you as much as it's been for us. Sure, sure, yeah. absolutely. So you got hired by Remote Year. What was, what did they say? Like, what was your job like when you started? What did they say? Yeah, so so at the time, it was the role was definitely still being evolved. Um, I was, like, really lucky to follow Trish, who was, like, just an amazing woman. And and she kind of carved out, uh, like, what, what this role would be. Um, and... I mean, to be fair, so much stuff changed between the first group and the second group that there wasn't a ton of clarity. And a lot of it was just like put out. It was like, make this up as you go. And these are the main responsibilities you have. And then like fill in all the gaps when they come up. Mm-hmm. And like, that's definitely the way that I, I, I prefer to work is like, these are the core things you have to do. And then everything else like figure it out. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there wasn't a lot of direction. But the core things that you were responsible for for our group is like help. Like, obviously, I guess maybe not obviously, but remote year has like travel, travel agents or whoever's like doing the reservations, but, and people who are scoping out where the places are going to be or the forms of transportation. And so they're setting things up, but you're the one coordinating. Yeah. So my job is like on a larger scale is like coordinate and execute on the plans that other people have made. So we have this, this travel team that makes all the bookings, but then it's my job to get everyone to the airport and get them on the plane and deal with (laughs) any problems along the way. And then we have another internal team that's booking all of our apartments, but it's my job to um, show up, make sure everyone gets into the right apartments, and then manage all the problems that may come up throughout. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> that may come up throughout the course of a month. And it's the same <laughs> with the workspace. We have um, a team that coordinates a workspace, but then it's my job to kind of like facilitate uh, the relationship between all of you guys, all the remotes, and either like our team there on the ground or the co-working space staff. Uh, so like my job is is mainly built around like facilitating things for the actual group on the ground. Right. And there's Dave, who's our community manager. And at the beginning of the year, these roles didn't exist. But now we have city managers who work together to make like our events and the professional networking and some of the more social side and the local culture and, and the ways that we can have a cooking class so we can go on a, a tour of this or we can meet. Um, you know, like in Cambodia, the the director of the documentation center and have like talks like that. And so those are obviously really important parts of remote year, but your job is much more focused around the deliverables of the company and what they do and how we get that. And yeah, issues. yeah, exactly. Like the promises that I'm, I'm backing up are much more quantifiable. And so like we say like, you're going to have an apartment with these, like that, that's going to meet these qualifications and then that's like my job to make sure that that happens and we're getting much better at that everything yeah. is I think um like the company as a whole is definitely moving moving in the right direction in that regards <laughs> um but then like some of the other stuff that Dave or the city managers are doing where it's event planning um it's it's kind of like helping to find positive impact opportunities those things are a little bit harder to harder to gauge and harder to like um build a standard for so right so um yeah. And it, and it does. Um, and for that, like it varies. I mean, everything varies in a city to city, country to country, seasonal basis, um, because it's hard to say, like, 
oh, well, you know, even when we're doing like our feedback to you guys, like if I'm talking about the experience in Phnom Penh, like the community events that made sense there and the positive impact that makes sense there, like even if that's wonderful, you can't translate that to how it should work in Ho Chi Minh. Like they're two different countries and what's going on there is very different in each one. Exactly. So, it's a totally different context. Like it's, it's funny, like this is a great example of this country. The, the context is we're in Ho Chi Minh City, we're in Vietnam, it's a communist government. Um, volunteer work isn't easy to find here because mm -hmm. the government kind of uh, has a monopoly on that whole sector. And so um, any volunteer opportunities are like paid volunteer opportunities that take course over weeks or months. Um, but NGOs, for example, it's, it's hard to get an NGO license here. Yeah. Um, so like so remote like, year can't really. <laughs> we can like do our best to try to find opportunities, but it's just a totally different context in a country like Cambodia where like NGOs are knocking on your door to like get, get volunteers, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting to see uh, the experience or to have the experience in all the different countries and continents that we're on um, because it does change so much with each month. And uh, it's I think our itinerary was a really good one, but it was I think it's been very interesting because we did the first four months in South America, four in Europe and four in Southeast Asia. And in some ways, I think it's a great arc because you kind of like you dive right into a totally different world. And like, yeah, they speak Spanish and it's in the same time zone. And it's like kind of similar to maybe things you've been exposed to in North America. But like, I think it was surprising the standard of living like Asia is obviously not as developed in some ways, in many ways, as like Europe and America, but the tourism industry there is really strong, here is really strong. And like what we can get for the fees that we have, I feel like in Asia is like pretty high standard. Whereas I was surprised in South America, because um, I'm, I, I, you know, whatever execution it was in different ways, like I'm sure Remote Year was doing the best that they could. And I just think things were more expensive than I would have expected in a lot of the countries. And what you get for that is very different than you'd expect. Cause you're like, I'm in South America and like Montevideo is like, I guess expensive. And like, yeah, not it, what you'd think. Yeah. And part of that is like, you look at things like Montevideo for, is a great city. For example, um, the infrastructure in Montevideo is something that service departments, for example, or like kind of remote years preferred accommodation doesn't exist like yeah. it's really hard to find and when you can find it it's not in the kind of neighborhoods that you want to be in it's in like very fancy upper class like elite neighborhoods that are far away from everything mm -hmm. and so like that was a great city where we ended up in hotels and <laughs> yeah and, and and i wish we could have found service apartments there but then in asia for it's you know there's tons of them there's so many right. opportunities to, for like long-term rent places like this and so in that regard asia is like makes makes like everything a little bit easier for us yeah but i think south america was a really uh it was challenging and i think there's like adjustments on how you onboard a remote your group into that environment straight off the bat versus like if you've started in a different continent and you've already established like how remote your works and then you show up in south america like i obviously can't speak to that experience um but i think i think it was a really big challenge for our group and probably a really big challenge for you as a result because we were just going through all sorts of stuff for those first four months. But I also think um, on our end, those of us that made it through uh, really got close and had have th these incredible memories from those four months and like everything. Because outside of the cities and the remote year experience itself, like South America is just incredible. Yeah. Like everything we did there, like we, we had the reflection thing and we were just talking about like the side trips and the things we saw, like 
And, and there's other things like you, you look at the just Spanish having being able to like spend four months and getting that much closer to really getting to know locals, even if you only speak a very low level in four months, I think most people picked up enough to kind of at some level connect with people. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's really hard to do in Asia, for example. Um, just getting past like, hello and thank you is pretty challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. But kind of back to your point of, yeah, like those, those, the first few months, I think I think it's interesting. I think if we would have had our first four months anywhere, we would have had a lot of those same challenges. Yeah. Um, just because people are kind of adjusting to the lifestyle and getting to know each other. And there's weird group dynamics at play. And there's like, <laughs> it's, like it's like high school all over again. Um, but like Bolivia is the example that I think is so fun because um, you know this, like in, in Bolivia, everyone had a really tough time with uh, altitude <laughs> <Everything>. sickness <laughs> and food and people were Internet. like, and, and people were getting like hurt <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. But, but at the time I, I, it was like definitely not a place where people were like clamoring to go back. And then uh, later we took it off kind of some, some future itineraries or, or we took it out of our our circulation for itineraries for the programs that are launching in the next few months and everyone was like where's bolivia why aren't we going back to bolivia bolivia is so group. amazing yeah really yeah and if you ask people in this group i think it's i think it's really interesting if you ask people in this group how many people's favorite month was bolivia mm-hmm. i think you'd be surprised by how many people would say that well i think i think what i've heard and what people have said at least in the conversations i've had is that bolivia was probably one of the favorite months in terms of the amazing side trips that people did, like the Amazon, the Salt Flats, the Adventure Weekend, Death Road, canyoning, like the rainforest, like Bolivia had everything. And, and the food there was really interesting local food that was very familiar. So you feel like oh, I'm really traveling, like I'm eating like these weird saltenas um, for 50 cents. And like also some really interesting new, like innovative modern food, like gusto and stuff like that. Um, and so I think the cultural experience and adventurous like travel experience of Bolivia was amazing, but on the remote year side, it was a frustrating place in terms of like your, the infrastructure of the country just isn't super strong. And like the accommodations, it's either like you're in Zona Sur, but then that's like a very like niche part of the city compared to where we were at. And, and so I think like, it's one of those things that it's one of our favorite months for the big picture. And then like, but does it work for a remote year? Like, I don't know. And, and maybe in three years, it'll be an amazing remote year city. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a longer conversation, yeah. but it's, it's definitely, <laughs> it's definitely a city that we all love and we'd yeah. love to see it, like figure out a way to get some internet better and stabilize yeah. the power grid a little bit. <laughs> it's like we, we joke about how remote your break cities, but as it turns out in the future, like remote, you might be like building them up, like to help with the infrastructure, which is, Kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in Cusco, um, I think we were one of the first ones to ever have fiber fiber optics in Cusco. Um, mm-hmm. It just didn't really exist. And when you bring a group like Remote Ear in there, like all of a sudden it lays it lays down like kind of a, a path a path to the future. Like fiber optics, even if we're not paying for that line in the future, they're still, they're still there in Cusco. It exists now. You're welcome, Cusco. <laughs> That's from Batuta. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. So how has your job been this year? It's been great. I mean, like I said, like the beginning, like it just didn't have, we were so new at the time that there was so many things we were figuring out. It didn't have the most direction. I had my core responsibilities. And then a lot of it was just like, figure out where else you can add value. Um, and, and I think like, 
in this job, like like you alluded to, like there are definitely times where it's been been challenging, but like being with such a, a cool group of people and people who are like overall so like forgiving and understanding is actually been like really, really surprising and endearing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the kind of thing that like, you know, we're in situations you're traveling for a year. So at any given point, you've been traveling for months at a time. You have travel days that maybe it's like an international 28 hour experience or even some of our bus rides and other things are 10, 14 hours and people get hungry, they get tired, they're cranky, they're in pain, they can be challenging. Um, but so we see each other at our absolute worst moments. And that means that there are times when, whether it's just like one bad day or your somebody's had a bad month for whatever reason, um, they like, we have meltdowns and we have times that we just are furious and have lash out at you or somebody, but usually you, <laughs> um, but the benefit of being together so much and for so long is that like you get to see the recovery from that and like you get to grow from it. It's not just like a week long trip or a, a month with a group. Like we have such a long experience in relationship that it's not just like this one really bad day that we have. Like we get to move forward from that. We just say, like, Hey Jason, like star is really hungry yesterday. <laughs> like <laughs> No, that's like at the end of the day, like it, it, looking back at it now, it, it kind of feels like, my job is like helping travel logistics for like a group of my, you know, 50 best friends or whatever. Like, yeah. it's like that my job is to help people that I'm friends with at work. Like, yeah. it's, it's like a pretty cool concept once you, once you kind of get deeper into it. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I love it. And, and it just like gives me this opportunity to keep traveling and moving and like meeting cool people and doing cool things all the time. And, the lifestyle is just unbeatable. Yeah. And I think the, the prolonged experience also helps give us the perspective of not just being like the client or the customer or whatever, or, or what it would be like to have like that. Like, I think part of the challenge of something like South America or the first four months in general is that it's all kind of new and you're like really worried about what you're getting and if it makes sense and if it pays off. And, but the longer you have it going for, the more that you can adjust and you can say like, Hey, remote year. Hey, Jason, um, this thing doesn't meet that standard of expectations we've discussed and like it needs to, but also like, I understand the big picture and I know how to be reasonable. And, uh, like, I understand that we're going to fix it and move forward. Um, which you don't always, it's, it's hard to kind of establish that and like get to that point. And I think by about six months, seven months in, like we were at a better place to be able to have those reasonable expectations and flexibility and remote year was better able to like provide it. So absolutely. Yeah. It's been, it's been really interesting. I think yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been a lot of things. It's been a lot of things. Interesting. is one of them. And, and, and yeah, only good things to say about this group and like this, this whole year. Yeah. And we, I mean, are just unbelievably indebted to you because like Jason really has just like kept us alive and together for a year. And like, we do not make it easy. <laughs> That's the interesting thing is like the group is 23 to 65 our average age is like 29 i think when we came in yeah. and so certainly like everybody's adults a lot of us have traveled before but i mean i was traveling for a year and a half as a digital nomad before remote year and the point of me coming on the program was that i didn't want to have to be responsible for everything anymore so i like was very happy to hand off a lot of those things um and uh 
once you start, like, even if you're an adult and you're used to taking care of your own life and you're used to traveling alone, like once it's not your problem anymore, we just have become like completely helpless. We're like, I don't know, Jason, like fix it. Like do it. Like you're like, you guys can solve this. Like, you know how to do this. We're like, I don't know. You're doing it. Like you're in charge now. We're just going to be children. Like, you know, what, right, at, right after this year ends, it'll come back. It'll all come rushing back to you and you'll figure out how to do it. You're going to get so many emails when, whenever we've taken side trips, like independent of remote year and you have like a travel problem. Like when I was stranded in Morocco, I was just like, I like, I remember like having that 2am meltdown at the desk and they're telling me I have to change this flight. I have to pay $500. And I was just like, oh my God, if I was with remote, you're like, Jason would be the one at this desk. I wouldn't have to give my credit card for a $500 flight change. Like remote, you would be paying for it. Like, oh, yeah, like yeah. this is why I pay for the program. <laughs> like, Cause then it's not my fault. You can't, you can't leave us. That was your mistake. You went on a side trip and you, you left us for, for a week. Yeah, well, now we're we're getting pushed out of the nest. So we're in the <laughs> final Talk 10 days. Fly. <laughs> God. Um, so, yeah, so our program's coming to an end, which is sad. Um, and what are you doing next? So I'm going to still be working with Remote Year. I'm going to be um, taking, like, a little bit of the experience and context that I've gotten throughout this year and hopefully helping to apply it to some of the new programs. So I'm going to be helping oversee a couple of the newer programs that are launching this next month and then all the way through May um, and just kind of helping train program leaders and, and kind of give them assistance and support throughout the year. So you're not going to try to replace us with a new group? No, absolutely not. I can, <laughs> I can never replace you guys. Um, We're going to be very territorial <laughs> with you. <laughs> I am looking forward to getting to know some more cool people, but um, I'll, I'll never have another group in the way that, that we had Batuta. Yeah. Um, so that's, so you're going to be moving between several of the newer groups that are starting and kind of guiding more their managers through the process of leading a group. That's right. So I'll be, I'll be working more directly with like the program leaders, people that are doing the job that I'm currently finishing up on. Um, but then there will definitely be like a few things that I'll be kind of stepping in from like the the more like remote year central team perspective to, to talk to, talk to remotes. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, that job means you'll just kind of be, you're, you're no longer tied to a program, so you'll kind of just be traveling between different groups and the yeah, that's right. team. That's right. It'll give me a little bit more travel flexibility. I'll still be spending almost almost all of my time with, with those three, three or four programs that I'll be like directly working with. It'll just be kind of jumping between them back and forth. Are those three programs doing like a similar itinerary together? Like, are they moving through the continents in the same way or are you going to just be? Yeah. So it's actually two of those, two of the programs um, aren't going to be going to Asia. They're like the um, North America and Europe or um, the Americas and Europe um, uh, itineraries. And then one of those programs is launching here in Asia. So um, after oh, those two don't go because two don't go. So now remote, you're splitting up their program where the itineraries either are just Europe and the Americas so that you only have like about a six to eight hour time difference. And then other programs that do all three. Yeah. Continents. So it's kind of going back and forth. It's just like one of the, one of the biggest feedback points we get is that for people that are working us, uh, work hours, it's really hard to be in Asia. And so just to like, give those people a little bit more flexibility, we're, we're offering um, opportunities to only do um, Latin America and, and Europe, North Africa. And, and I, th- I think like those programs, um, we don't have a ton of them yet, but I think we're going to try to kind of keep offering them more as long as there's demand for those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Asia is a, a great part of, of, of yeah. uh, and I think it's like if, if you're able to do it, um, if like work allows you to do it, I think it's a, it's, it's a really great thing to do. But 
also like I totally understand that already like going abroad and doing remote year is a leap of faith for a lot of employers and kind of knocking off that time difference makes a lot of sense for some people. Yeah, I know it's been hard for people who've had to keep a stricter schedule of um, dealing with Asia hours and doing like the, whether that's like a 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. with a few hours during the day, uh, that can be very tiring and like really hard to manage. But on the other hand, I think one of one of the biggest things for remote year for me, which I wrote about in my how to stay on remote year, six month, five months in post, was that it's a finite experience. Like you, as a participant, you know it ends after a year. It's a, it's in the name. It's in the contract. Like it's a year. So, any given situation that you're in is a year at most, probably six months, four months at most, depending on the continent that you're on, and then a month at a time in each different city. And and your accommodations will change the next month. Like the internet will change the next month. Like hopefully they're all like above a certain level. But like if you're having a difficulty if you have a schedule that's hard, like it's four months, like it maybe is not the thing you want to do forever, but like, could you manage it for four months? Like you can actually put up with a lot for a handful of months at a time. And like, certainly nobody should be miserable, but I think a lot of people in our group, even who've had like a really strict U S Pacific coast working hour schedule, that's been challenging. I don't think those people would say, I I don't want to be in Asia. Like I wish I was in Europe and the Americas only because it is such a cool part to have the three continent experience and go through all of that and see that much of the world and be able to say like, I really like got a diverse spread. Yeah. I mean, like, shout out to Arshad who's working uh, <laughs> from, like 9 PM till, till 4 AM or something. And yeah. every day at like one o'clock, he's trying to find people to go out to lunch <laughs> and explore a city and, and he's crushing his job, but also like still taking full advantage of everything. And and, and yeah, like it's totally possible if, if it's something that you want to do. And I think like for for the opportunity to see Asia and the craziness that is Asia and like all of the really unique cultural things that, that you just can't get anywhere else, uh, I think it's totally worth it. Yeah, definitely. And I think the nice thing is like, it, you know, if you just came on remote year and that was all you saw, like you would definitely get a very interesting international experience. Um, but I also think it's a good way to kind of set a foundation for yourself, like whether or not you come back to the specific countries or not. Like it, it, in our experience, you got to see some of South America, some of Europe, some of Asia. And I think it really empowers people, regardless of your travel experience, to know how to go back to similar places and be like, yeah, I've been to Serbia, so I can probably figure out how to go to Hungary. And like, I've been to Bolivia, like now I can go to like Chile or whatever. And I think that's a really valuable part of doing remote years, it, it really opens the world up because you have now reference points of how to live and travel in all these different countries um, and not do it alone. Because I, I mean, I was in Southeast Asia last year for six weeks and it was a great experience. I got a lot out of it, but the difference of being in Phnom Penh or Kuala Lumpur by myself and being there with remote year is like, you know, you're in a bubble a little bit with remote year, but I was in a bubble by myself in a different way. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that's like pretty common. I mean, people talk about like being in a bubble and if, if you stay at a hostel and you meet people at a hostel, then like you're kind of in that hostel bubble and you need to break out of that. And it's the same with remote year. If, if you want to, you're going to be living with other remotes and it's really easy to stay into that bubble. But like at the end of the day, that's not why you got up and left, you know, left your, the place that you're from and did this for a year. It's because like you wanted to step out and 
I'm not like, of course, people need reminders throughout the year because it's really easy to get complacent and traveling for a full year. Sometimes it, sometimes it can be like challenging and it's it's a little bit draining. So like. Yeah, you need to be able to like watch Netflix and chill with your roommates <laughs> and like but, order but, pizza. But but it's the same dynamic. Like you have to be the one that wants to step outside of that zone. And once you decide that you want to, it's not that hard. Once right. you do it the first time, you realize like I can totally. And we have some people in our group. Um, who just who just travel all the time they like before we get to a country they go online and look for locals to meet there and they just like really make a point to do that and I think those are the people who have the most rewarding experiences yeah definitely and I, it's like there's a mix because I think part of it is like how do I step outside of remote year and, and have a local experience and make my own connections and do some solo travel and then there's also coming into it and saying how do I take advantage of being on remote year because from for the rest of my life I've, I can travel alone and do things differently like what is unique about this community what are the cool things about the platform that we have or the events that remote year can organize that I wouldn't be able to or probably organize myself um, and so I think it's cool to take advantage of both of those things and um, but I mean because remote year actually for the benefits and challenges of the program like I think overall has done a really good job of it, it saves us a ton of time and like people think that the fee is high and it's certainly not the cheapest way, but like having you organizing things and having you be able to coordinate like travel problems and apartment problems and internet problems and SIM cards, like that is time and money for, for us and having the city team like know what are the restaurants to recommend and who are the nonprofits we can work with and how do I go to a temple and meet a monk or how do I go to, um, you know, like all these things that we get to do through remote year, like facilitating it. It's, it's really incredible and it, it's really hard to do by yourself. So I guess I'm glad that there's an alumni network because uh, I'm going to need, it's going to be great to have those contacts and that, that help. That's right. And I think that's, that's really cool. Like even though our group our, even though our program is ending, it's not really ending. Like the, the network is still going to be there and we're still going to have people traveling the world and, you know, you're always welcome back to join one of our programs or, or come for a month and, and visit one of the cities we're in. Yeah. And it is, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it changes as it grows, but um, I'm very sad that I won't get to see you every day in the near future, but I know you're going to do a great job for the other programs. And thank you for doing the interview and thank you for taking care of Batuta. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. For more information or to subscribe to our newsletter, please go to our website at modernworkpodcast.com. This is a passion project that is self-funded with support by listeners and friends via Patreon. Visit modernworkpodcast.com to learn more about how to contribute. Thank you for listening and please share.